Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Literary Salon podcast. It's time for another book of the week. I said that like Davina McCall sending people into the Big Brother house. But anyway, <laughs> um, this is the podcast where you get to be first to hear about the books that we are most excited about. We're always sifting, always reading, always searching. And this week we're celebrating the paperback release of Mouth to Mouth by Antoine Wilson. This is the third novel uh, by Antoine, who is from Montreal, and their literary star is very much on the rise. The book is very often compared to Portrait of a Thief by Grace D. Lee and The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. I only read that book for the first time a few years ago and I absolutely loved it. Anyway, so the framing, is sort of akin to a classic novel where we have an unnamed narrator listening to a tale, learning as the reader does of another man's astounding and seemingly charmed life. The story opens as a struggling author runs into a man called Jeff Cook at an airport. Jeff is an old college friend who invites him in to the first class lounge. We'd all go, let's face it. As they wait for their departures, Jeff tells our narrator of the time his life took a sudden dramatic turn when he performed CPR on a drowning man. The saved man is Francis Arsenault, a renowned art dealer. Now, while he never learns the identity of his Good Samaritan, Jeff becomes obsessed with knowing more about Francis and begins working for him in his art gallery, never revealing his true identity and gradually encroaching on his life. However, as with all of these stories, there is a twist. As our narrator relaxes into his seat listening to Jeff's story, there's a growing sense of unease. How reliable is his account? And what purpose does a storytelling really serve? Let's go to Antoine for a wee reading. Hello, I'm Antoine Wilson, and I'm stoked to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new novel, Mouth to Mouth. The passage I am about to read in it, uh, Jeff Cook, who was telling uh, the narrator his story, is sort of, he's gone to the beach early in the morning around dawn. He's suffering in the, in the wake of a breakup. And um, while he's sitting there staring at the horizon, um, he sees something. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught a dark form on the surface of the water. He was pretty sure it hadn't been there a moment before. A clump of kelp? No, a swimmer, making for the shore, an arm slapping the water, then drifting, as if scanning the bottom, like a snorkeler without a snorkel, but then not. The swimmer undulated with the passing swell. The lack of muscle tension signaled to Jeff that something was wrong. He stood to watch, expecting the swimmer's arm to rise to slap the water again, or his head to turn for a breath, but nothing happened. He went to flag a lifeguard, but the towers were shuttered. Up and down the beach there was only a single woman jogging, too distant to take notice. He hadn't yet faced a moment like this in his life, one in which he knew with certainty that the crisis at hand was his alone to deal with, one during which he wished for the intercession of the God he didn't believe in, or anyone who might know what to do, or even someone as clueless and panicked as himself who could, by their presence, share the burden. It was one of those crucial moments one which, when reflected on, wouldn't be laughed off, but would send a chill up his spine. 
because even if he felt that he had no choice, that anyone would have done what he did in that situation, he would have to acknowledge that he was being tested. Because in truth, he could have given up, could have despaired, could have walked away, could have pretended he hadn't seen what he'd seen, could have subtracted himself from the scenario, told himself that he wasn't even there, that he'd left a moment too early or arrived a moment too late, that the predicament had not in fact fallen in his lap, but only grazed him as it passed, undisturbed and unaddressed, left to unfold by itself as nature might have intended. I pointed out that one's interceding or not could equally represent fate, that letting nature take its course could include any number of interventions, since we ourselves were inseparable from nature. He considered this for a moment, seemed about to reply, and sipped his beer instead. The water was so cold, he continued, after he'd polished off the beer and fetched another, that it took his breath away. He felt like he was unable to get enough air into his lungs. Nevertheless, he made for the body, stomping through the shallows in his underwear and t-shirt, and then swimming, thinking that the man was probably okay, that he was being foolish, that the man would pop his head up at any moment and bring to an end what would forever become an embarrassing story about Jeff's tendency to jump to conclusions, to act before considering consequences. These thoughts alternated round Robin with others, equally powerful and clear, that this man was dead, and had been dead a long time and was only drifting to shore. But hadn't he seen an arm slap the water? The cold bit into his hands and feet, and though he swam with his head up, he tasted seawater with every stroke. When he reached the body, he hesitated to touch it. What if it sprang to life and dragged him down with the last of its energy, as drowning people were said to do? He took hold of a shoulder and tried to flip the man onto his back, but without being able to touch the bottom, he couldn't get the leverage he needed. He grabbed the man's hand and towed him the short distance to shore, swimming an awkward one-armed breaststroke, scanning the beach for anyone he could call on for help. At the inshore ditch, he went underwater and shoved the body from below, using a ripple of swell to propel it onto the sand. It rolled came to rest on its back, limbs folded awkwardly as if it had fallen from a height. He stood before it, a middle-aged man in a slick swimmer's wetsuit, tinted goggles, bluish skin, purple lips. He had thought of him as both a he and an it, a man and a body, but now the form on the sand had resolved into a human being, a he definitively no sign of breathing, and he had no idea how to take a pulse. He didn't dare remove the goggles for fear of revealing eyes wide open but unseeing. He dragged him away from the water's edge, wavelets erasing the track he left in the sand. The jogger was closer now, but not yet upon them. The closest telephone was at the beach lot. If he had run back then to dial 911, would anyone have blamed him? He had seen CPR on television, but had no idea how it was really done. He put his hands on the man's chest, locked his elbows, and pumped. The sternum felt like a spring-loaded plate. Water leaked from the side of the man's slack mouth. He counted the compressions 
uselessly, not knowing when to stop. He knew what came next and didn't hesitate. The lips were cold, the stubble rough. He blew into the man's mouth and water sprayed onto his cheek. He had neglected to pinch the nose. The chest rose and fell with his breath, but only as a bellows fills and empties. The skin looked no less blue. A feeling of disgust threatened to overtake him, spurred by the idea that he wouldn't be able to save this man, meaning he wasn't breathing air into a human being who needed help, but into a corpse. The jogger appeared, stopping in her tracks 20 feet away. He cried at her to get help, and she ran toward the highway. He returned to pumping the chest. Something cracked under the heel of his hand, and with each subsequent compression, he could feel the break in the bone. Salt water poured thick and foamy from the man's mouth. Nobody would have blamed Jeff for giving up. He wiped the foam aside with the back of his hand and breathed for the swimmer again, trying not to retch. Then to the sternum, the compressions, trying to put out of his mind the feeling of bone scraping against bone. A seagull stood in the sand not five feet away watching, its eye black like a wet seed. Jeff tried to think of himself as a machine, doing the job of the man's heart and lungs, an incessant cycle of breaths and compressions. This went on and on. He wondered when it would be okay to stop. But stopping would mean leaving the man for dead. He couldn't do that. It wasn't who he was. Someone else would have to come, someone who could take over, a professional maybe, who could look at this body and determine that there was no saving him and bear the burden of giving up. When would that person arrive? Overcome with exhaustion but seeing no other choice, Jeff continued, the compressions, the breaths. The body convulsed. The swimmer gasped for air and coughed a cough unlike any Jeff had ever heard, sharp and wet at the same time. He rolled away from Jeff, vomited in the sand, moaned, tore off his goggles, vomited again. Jeff sat paralyzed, exhausted, and in awe, confused as to what to do next. He heard the blood coursing through his ears. His gut twisted. He started to shiver. Spectators materialized. Had they been watching from a distance? One asked if the swimmer was okay. Jeff didn't answer. He wasn't even sure they were asking him. A lifeguard truck rolled up, lights flashing. An old-timer emerged from the cab, red jacket, red shorts, ruddy face, silver mustache, moving with the equanimity of a lion on the belt. He crouched by the swimmer, asked questions. What was his name? Did he know where he was? The day of the week? The mumbled responses were inaudible to Jeff. The lifeguard wrapped the swimmer in a gray wool blanket. Two medics in wraparound sunglasses came marching across the sand, each carrying an orange case, their ambulance idling in the beach lot behind them. Help had arrived and was continuing to arrive. The swimmer tried to sit up, groaning in pain, but was kept supine by the medics who affixed an oxygen mask to his face. Jeff asked for a blanket, and it took a moment for the lifeguard to recognize that the Long-haired young man before him in t-shirt and boxers had been involved and was soaked and hypothermic. He fetched another blanket from the truck and tossed it to Jeff. 
Jeff pulled it tight over his shoulders. The lifeguard turned his attention to Jeff, and Jeff stood to answer his questions. Dennis, per the name tag, although whether it was a first or last name was never revealed, asked him to describe what had happened. Jeff saw that Dennis's mustache wasn't entirely silver but had patches of yellow in it. As Jeff ran down everything that had occurred, he watched Dennis's eyes go from squinting to wide open, his crow's feet stretching to reveal little folds of paler skin usually hidden from the sun. Dennis said that the swimmer had been very fortunate that Jeff had been on the beach. This could have been a very different call, he said, as if concerned mainly with the progress of his morning. The swimmer clutched his chest and moaned again. Dennis went to the truck to pull out a wooden board with straps attached to it. He and the medics started securing the swimmer to it. The swimmer turned his gaze to Jeff for the first time. With the oxygen mask on his face, he was the inverse of the man Jeff had pulled from the water, nose and mouth now covered, eyes exposed, one lid slightly drooping, whether congenital or from the trauma, it was impossible to say. His eyes were light, blue or green, and together with his furrowed brow conveyed puzzlement. He raised his arm a few inches as if he might point at Jeff or make some other gesture, but a medic guided it back down and strapped him in. I saved your life, Jeff wanted to say, but it was for the swimmer to say, not him. Okay, just get your breath back after that. It is a rapid fire page turner, not a big cast of characters and a very satisfying twist. It's one of those short novels that you can read in one tense night. Get your torch, get the covers, get cozy. There's loads of moral ambiguity and questions about what would you do with a second chance? Also, what would you do in a first class lounge apart from just drink all the drinks and eat all the snacks? This is a standout literary thriller. It's perfect for book clubs. Loads of people are going to be talking about it in paperback. It's also one of Barack Obama's favourite books of 2022. I know the man has good taste. So get to your nearest bookshop or your nearest library and find out what all the hype is about. That was Antoine Wilson reading exclusively for the Literary Salon. His book, Mouth to Mouth, is published by Atlantic Books and it is available now in paperback in all lovely indies and in our wee shop on bookshop.org. Now you know that we love to hear from you, so if you've read the book, please share your thoughts on socials, but don't share the twist and do share this episode with a bookish bestie who loves a literary thriller. Thank you for listening. It is a pleasure to be in your ear. Get in touch if you want to tell us anything exciting that you're reading or if you've been to a lovely bookshop. We love to hear about new bookshops too. Join us again soon. Thank you. <laughs>